you would take out the Word of God and turn to Mark chapter 5. We dive back into our sermon series in the Gospel of Mark that we're calling the Unserved King. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve us. That is the theme of the book of Mark. And He serves us with great power and great holiness, which uh, leads me to remind you that our holiness of God study studies begin this week, our equipped studies. Uh, Thursday night uh, will be our first women's study. And then Friday morning, there's another study for women that will uh, have child care. And also on Friday morning, beginning earlier than that, at 6 a.m., our men will meet. Uh, if there's one book uh, that I would refer anyone to read, it is The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. Uh, the book changed my life my freshman year of Bible college. Uh, it really shook me with a big and glorious view of God uh, that has shaped my ministry. And so I would encourage you to be a part of one of those studies. I truly believe it will not only change your life, but the life of our church when we understand God is holy, which is one of the things we see in Jesus in our text today. In the story in Mark chapter 5, the two stories that we're going to look at today, beginning in verse 21 through verses through verse 43, we see the holiness of Jesus on display. We also see that life is really hard, that bad things happen, that we are cursed with great difficulty in this world. And we, we can't hide from that, and we shouldn't hide from that. We shouldn't try to run away from that. Life doesn't work that way. But the solution to our worst problems is a holy, righteous Savior. And I'm going to read verse 41 to begin our time together as we study God's Word, as we look at God's Word together as a church family. Stand in reverence to the reading of God's perfect Word. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha, kumai, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. Oh God, I pray that those words would pierce our hearts today. And we would hear the words of a holy Savior saying to us, arise, child. Arise. God, there are those of us who come in this room and we are dead in sin. We don't even know why we're here today. Why would I do this today? And right now, our thoughts and our desires are far away from Christ. And yet, I pray they would hear, arise. Follow Him. And they would. God, there are those of us in this room and it feels as though everything's going well. And it covers up issues of sin in our life. We are trusting in our own ability and our pride to make things good or look good. And God, I pray that today those folks would hear arise. And there are those in this room who would say, my life is a mess. It is falling apart. 
And I need to hear arise today. God, I pray that we would all hear the resurrection, powerful, holy, righteous words of Jesus. Little girl, arise. Little boy, arise. Men, women, children of God, arise. May we hear it today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. My friend lifted his daughter out of the hospital bed. And I was struck with the scars all over her little body. They were scars of literally months of cancer treatments. Her parents had spent half, half of her short life in a hospital with her. And my relationship as one of their pastors had really been formed in the Children's Hospital in Birmingham, Alabama. And I had met with them, it seemed like every other day in that hospital, and prayed for their precious little daughter to live. And along the way, there had been specks of hope, little glimmers of answered prayers along the way. But it only led to what we all knew was the inevitable. It only led to what seemed to bear down on this family for nearly two years. A moment when my friend in the hospital, he demanded that he would carry her out of the hospital himself. He didn't want the normal scenes of death to be imprinted on everyone's mind and heart. And I'll never forget the moment that he picked her up. And I walked down the hall with him. We got in an elevator. We rode down the elevator as he held his daughter's body. And then he walked out of the hospital with her and handed her to a complete stranger who prepared her body for the hardest funeral that I've ever preached in my life. And you know what? In those moments as I walked with him and those images that even come back, I, I never felt sorry for him. I only felt a sense of complete helplessness. It was a moment where God just struck me and said, you can't do anything about this one. You see, by nature, I'm just someone who likes to fix things. I come up with plans and solutions and strategies. Give me a problem. I, I thrive in those situations. And yet I'll never rem forget walking out of the hospital early in ministry and being struck with the reality that there is no amount of biblical counsel, there is no amount of theology, there is no amount of preaching, there is no amount of prayer that will bring my friend's daughter back. The reality is we can't fix our worst problems. We can't. You see, Adam's sin brought death into the world. And we live separated from God's good rule of life in the world by our sin. We've chosen to do that. And we are cursed in a world full of death. 
And because we can't fix our sin problem, we can't fix the death problem. There's only one who can do that. There's only one who can fix the sin problem and reverse the decay of death in the world. His name is Jesus. And it's who we meet in the text in very difficult situations, horrific situations. Even like the story I just told, we find Jesus right in the middle of such circumstances. And we see in our passage today that the curse of sin and death, it is an equal opportunity villain. There, there's a story of a very religious man, a very respected man in a very well-to-do home. And then there's the story of a woman who's considered an outcast. And yet they're both helpless before the curse of sin and death. They can't fix it. Only Jesus can. Notice verse 21. And when Jesus crossed again in the boat to the other side. Remember, I guess it's maybe been a month or so ago when we talked about Jesus who calmed the raging sea as they crossed over the Sea of Galilee. And then when he gets to the other side, he meets the demoniac, a man who is possessed by thousands of demons. And he casts those into pigs. And now he goes back to the other side of the sea. Now, as we see Jesus across the sea, we are to be reminded of Genesis chapter one, when the spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep at creation. And here we see the same word in flesh that created all things is bringing about a new creation. Jesus in a boat, the word of God that created all things. He is the one who is making all things new. And notice as he goes to the other side of the sea, a great crowd gathered about him. Now, this crowd probably waited on him. They, they, they were waiting because they were mesmerized by his power to restore his power to teach. And remember, we've talked about this throughout Mark. Jesus was a celebrity. He held celebrity status. Michael Jackson, the Beatles. He was all the rage. Because people saw his power. And they wanted to be close to him. They wanted him to fix their problems. And so they're waiting for him as he comes back to the other side of the sea. But among this crowd, notice verse 22. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus. By name and seeing him, he fell at his feet. The story amongst the crowd zeroes in on the ruler of the synagogue. He ordered the synagogue. He was a well-respected man in the community. He was a man full of integrity. But what does he do when he sees Jesus? He falls at his feet. Now, where have we seen that before? Remember the last story? What does the demoniac do when he sees Jesus? He falls at his feet. And here we have the holy power of God on the planet, on earth, and everyone, no matter your situation, the demoniac, the sick, the prostitute, the outcast, or the religious leader must bow before him. And he comes and he falls at his feet in a humiliating way. And remember, most people associated with the synagogue hated Jesus. He would come in and teach the scriptures and they say, what are you doing? 
You're just this hillbilly rabbi coming in here acting like you know the Bible better than we do. They couldn't stand him. But here their leader is bowing before him. Why? Because he's desperate. And why is he desperate? Verse 23. He implored him earnestly saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come lay your hands on her so that she may be well and alive. This man realizes as much as a scandal it may be to come to the Savior, a man in his position to come to Jesus, Jesus is his only hope. His little daughter, we will see, 12-year-old daughter, is at the point of death, is at her end, is what the text actually says. She's at the end of her life. And Jesus, you're the only one who can make her well. You're the only one who can make her whole. You see, at creation, when God created everything, what did he say it was? It's good. It's good. It's good. He makes man. He says it's very good. The word actually means whole. And here this man says, my my daughter is sick and dying. And you're the only one who can make her whole again so that she would live. Before sin comes into the world, everything is whole. It's good. It is full of life. Sin comes into the world. We have the curse of death. There is decay in the world, which means we're separated from the full rule of God's life. And here this little 12-year-old girl is experiencing the curse of sin and death. And this man says, Jesus, you're the only one who can make it right. And what does he do when he hears? And he went with him. Now Mark emphasizes an aggressive compassion with Jesus. Now remember, the crowd is all around. They are pressing in on him. Jairus comes and says, my little girl, I need you to make her well. He drops everything and goes with him. There's an aggressive compassion with Jesus. No conversation. Turns and goes. And what happens? Well, the crowd follows him. And the text says they thronged about him, meaning they they begin to cave in on him again. This is why he left this crowd. And we're reminded here that Jesus' ministry was very public. Think about that. The best teacher who's ever lived on the planet is Jesus Christ. The, the, the best shepherd, the best pastor, the best professor. And where did he do all of his teaching? Where did he do all of his ministry? Right smack dab in the middle of the crowds. Wasn't in an ivory tower. The crowds are closing in on him. And notice verse 25. And there was a woman. Now again... Mark wants us to be shook back and forth. He's over here across the sea. He comes back. There's there's the synagogue leader. He goes with him. No, but there's another woman who needs him. Notice the text. Who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no Better, but rather grew worse. Someone else who's in a desperate situation. Now, this condition would have made this woman barren. 
She would have been constantly ceremonial unclean. She would not have been able to go to worship. She would not have been able to be around her family. According to the law, she was ceremonial unclean. She would have to isolate to keep away from family and friends to keep them clean. No get togethers. And this would have been an absolute humiliating situation for this woman. Because this very private condition would have constantly had to have been made public to keep other people clean. And so she doesn't want to make it public as she hears about Jesus. But after 12 years, doctor after doctor. Now remember, medicine during that time was very superstitious. She probably tried things to get rid of this condition that were absolutely insane or crazy. And it only made it worse. It's cost her financially, emotionally, relationally, and it's only gotten worse. But notice verse 27. She heard reports about Jesus. Remember, he's famous. Casting out demons, healing the sick, hanging out with tax collectors and prostitutes. Everybody knows about this man and she hears he's back in town. But notice what she does. She comes up behind him in secrecy. She's hidden. Notice, and touched his garment. Verse, verse 28, for she said, if I touch his garments, I will be made well. If I could just touch his garments. And some people talk about the hem of his gar- garments, with re- which represented the fact that he was a teacher of the law. The most holy part of what this rabbi would wear his attire. If I could just touch the holiness of this teacher, I will be made well. But there's a problem with her being made well, being made good. Remember, she's unclean. So here's the tension in the story. If she touches Jesus as an unclean person, will she make him unclean? That's the drama. We're to be on the edge of our seat thinking about this. People will be reading this story and say, no, 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 she can't do that. He's the Holy One of God. God's holy teacher. Don't touch him. You're unclean. An ordinary rabbi wouldn't even been in this situation. Had nothing to do with her. But she touched him. In verse 29, immediately the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of the disease. Twelve years. A last ditch effort. If I can touch the helm of this holy, righteous teacher, maybe that'll do something. And after 12 years of fighting this, some of you know what it's like to go to the doctor over and over and over again. Some of you experienced that this year. What is it like? I've got this condition with my lungs. I've got this condition with my shoulders. I can't walk. I've got, and, and you go, what is this? 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 We don't have any answers for you. This is her life with this horrible condition. And in a moment, it's gone. She feels it. We see the holy power of Jesus to transform the physical and make it clean just by her touching him. Verse 30. And Jesus perceived in himself that power had gone out. Now, this is not like she walked up and stole a blessing. Got you, Jesus. You didn't even know I was here. Who was that? 
No, he knows someone has been healed. He knows someone has been restored. And we'll see the issue is her faith, not a sneak attack blessing. But immediately he turned about in the crowds and said, who touched my garments? And if you're one of the disciples, probably irritated. Somebody here has made him unclean. Somebody's done something wrong. No, no, no. Someone has touched me and been restored. And notice their response. And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, right? You're at Jesus. Okay, I know it's been a long day. Seen a lot of crazy things. Thousands of demons. Been in a storm earlier this week. We've seen a lot of crazy things. But there are hundreds of people surrounding you. And your question is, who touched you? Are you losing it? Everybody's touching you. Everybody is surrounding you. He said, you you say, who touched me? And notice verse 32, he continued to look around and see who had done it. And one of the things that struck me in this passage this week is Jesus's compassion and his distractions. We're with Jesus. If I'm with Jesus, I'm like, we got a schedule to keep, dude. We got to get to Jerry's house. And you talking about who touched you? Really? Let's, let's get on with it. Jesus is perfectly fine with being distracted. Because it is about the person in front of him in that moment. That's who means the most to him. Notice you continue verse 33. The woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him. And told him the whole truth. Notice she spills her guts. It's me. I'm the no one here could be as unclean as me. So it would have to be me you're talking about. It would have to be me. And she knows she came in faith. But she comes before him again in fear and trembling. And notice what she does. She falls down. We see again the holy power of Jesus. And she confesses. She tells him the whole truth. I touched you. Verse 34, and he said to her, daughter, is that beautiful daughter? Notice he honors her daughter. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed. He doesn't call her out as an outcast. We don't even know if he made a big scene about it. He, he looks down, daughter. He uses a term that communicates your family, your family as clean as you were seconds ago or unclean. You are clean now and your family. And he says, peace, shalom, the chaos in your body has ceased. Now go in peace. Now, here we see what we've talked about throughout the whole book of Mark is that the signs and wonders give us a window into the kingdom. The kingdom that's in flesh and blood. And here we have a window into the holy power of God that will cleanse the world of the film of sin and death. We see his holy power. We see one who is inherently holy. That means he's set apart to God inside and out in every way. He is perfectly pure. He is whole. He is not stained with sin. 
And we see here the one who is good and whole in this way is the only one who can make all things good again. And, and one of the amazing things that what we should be struck with in this story is that because of the inherent power of his holiness, sin doesn't make him unholy. Think about that. The curse of sin touching sinners doesn't make him unholy because he is inherently holy. His holiness overcomes sin and uncleanness. It's just like soap. When you take the soap and you're washing your hands, your dirty, disgusting hands, you don't make the soap dirty because it's inherently clean. That's what it is. You don't desanitize the Purell. No, Jesus, Jesus's holiness isn't overcome with our uncleanness. No, his holiness overcomes our uncleanness. And notice the emphasis here. It's in her faith. He says it's her faith. Now, I had a problem with that this week because so often in my theology, which is right, just ask me. God is always the initiator of faith. But here it's described as her faith is what initiates it. Her longing to move through the crowd and push people away. And just to get to the hem of it, that's what healed her. That's what made her body whole. He emphasizes her faith. And it's the only thing that would have made her clean. And think about this. Everything she had done, he said the doctors, the prayers, crying out to God at night, would you take this away from me? She couldn't do it in and of herself. She couldn't fix her problem. Only Jesus, the Holy One, could fix her problem. And there was a desperate pursuit of Jesus here to say, He's the only one who can fix it. Nobody else can. And that's the nature of faith. And you're not there with faith until you get there. You're like, Jesus, I can't do it. I can't be good enough. I can't worry enough. I can't Google these problems enough and come up with the, the, you know, the homemade solution for the spot on my forehead. I can't fix it. No, Jesus, Jesus is the only one. But we think we can fix all of our problems with our hands. And until we say, I can't fix my uncleanness. Only Jesus can. We don't understand faith. But she does. Now, where does this kind of faith begin for us today? Where does this faith that makes us clean begin? Well, it begins at the cross. This story should point us to the cross where all sin touched Jesus. All uncleanness was laid upon Jesus and it did not overcome his holiness at the cross unrighteousness, all unrighteousness and the righteousness of Christ clashed and there was only one left standing and it is the righteous son of God. And God would say to you today, if you would believe in his cross alone, his death for your sin, his life in your place, his resurrection, you're not just given the hem of his garment. 
No, you're covered in the robe of his righteousness. You get it all when you believe he's the only one who can make you clean of sin. That's where faith in Jesus that will make us ultimately clean in the kingdom begins. That's what that's what makes our heart clean is trusting in the cross. And from that clean heart, we begin to live. Notice he, he told her to go in peace. For the one who trusts in the cross, you can live in peace, knowing not one of your choices has ever overwhelmed his holiness. Think about that. You see, the unclean woman did not make Jesus unclean and neither will you. The peace of God through faith doesn't think of God sorting through your sins. In saying, which one of these can I cover? Well, I think I can make a deal with most of your sin. But there's a couple here that we have to talk about. There's a couple of your sins that we really need to negotiate here. That's not the way the gospel works. That's not the way the cross works. It's not like we're uh, applying for a credit check. Where God is looking at our record. Saying, I don't know what I can do for you. No, the payment for your sin at the cross is the inherently holy, righteous, clean, pure, good Son of God. And it covers all of your sin. And it makes you all clean when you believe in Him, when you trust in Him. And so those nights where you think, God, God can't forgive me of that. Now, I've gone through the motions, I've prayed, I trust the cross, I sing the songs, I go to church, but there's still that night in my mind, and He still hasn't forgiven me of that. He still hasn't made me clean of that. That season in your life where you disregarded God and everything that was good and right, those desires that still haunt you, your thoughts, your rage, your words. There, there, there are those sins that you hide away and you try to hide from God because you think if he knows about them and he associates with me, it's going to compromise his character. Can't happen. You can't make the one who is holy, righteous, unrighteous. And that's good news because it's his righteousness that saves you. When you believe in him and the one who is cleansed by such faith will be the same as this woman one day made whole, made perfect, made clean of all pain, abuse, dysfunction and disease in the kingdom. And as the text continues, he gives us a picture of the kingdom. Notice verse thirty five. While he was speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? And we're like, whoa, forgot about that, dude. Now we're back over here. Notice the terminology. Your daughter. These two women who are referred to in terms of endearment in the story. Display for us what faith is. What the gospel looks like. But notice your daughter is dead. It's too late. Probably synagogue folks who said it was useless to even worry this ragtag teacher anyway, this magician. Really? Just give up. It's over. Stop wasting your time. But Jesus overhears it 
And he said to the ruler, these powerful words, notice verse 36, do not fear, only believe. Very pointed. Don't fear. Stop it. Believe. It's a powerful statement amidst all the chaos. Think about what's going on in this man's life. Let's go, Jesus. Let's go, Jesus. My daughter's dying. My daughter's dying. And he sees Jesus talking to, to people in the crowd, healing disease. Daughter, you're clean. Go in peace. Come on, let's go. My daughter's dying. Too late. Imagine how his heart sunk. Finally got down on the ground, started weeping. And Jesus says, stop fearing. Believe. Amidst the chaos, believe me. He's saying, only trust me. Stop listening to the chaos that's all around. Verse 37, as we continue, and he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Now, this is the inner circle. These are the men who see the transfiguration. And here, this miracle seems to be on the same stage as the transfiguration. And he wants them to see the glory. Verse 38, and they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw all the commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. This is what happens when a little girl dies. Verse 39, and when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? Like, why is this going on? And we go, well, because the child's dead. And yet Jesus is just outlandish here. What's going on with all this commotion and chaos, weeping and wailing? And he says these words, the child is not dead, but sleeping. Now here at their house were probably professional mourners. And they were hired out to make rackets at funerals. It would be like hiring someone, a ceremonial choir for your wedding or a special music at your wedding. It was just a part of the festivities. And it added to the chaos and despair. And these professionals are distant from what's happening, which is counter to what Jesus is doing here, who feels the pain and agony. In verse 40, notice what these folks did. They laughed at him. You're an idiot. The child's dead. That's fairy tale. What's wrong with you? You're a moron. And we're reminded of Abraham and Sarah. Remember when Sarah laughed at the promise of Isaac because she was well in age and God was going to provide her a child. And that's a stupid promise, right? It's stupid for you to say the child is not dead, but sleeping. But he went, but he, he put them out. And he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and he went into where the child was. What else are you going to do, Jesus? She's dead. And taking her by the hand, he said, Talitha, come I, which means a little girl, I say to you, arise. Notice the terminology he uses. My little girl is dying. I need you. And we're taken back to that same phrase, little girl, little girl. He identifies with the father's pain and agony here. He uses the same word for her that her her dad used. Little girl. It's beautiful. Jesus identifies with him. He says, arise. And this is resurrection language, resurrection language. K 
counterintuitive. It's not natural to speak to dead people and say, get up. They're not getting up. They're dead. Unless you're Jesus. Verse 42. And immediately the little girl got up and began walking. For she was 12 years old. It's perfectly normal for her to walk. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. Now, notice immediate. Immediate. Mark wants to jar us. This is crazy. She got up. Wow. But notice what she does. He emphasized she began walking. And then, notice verse 43, he strictly charged them to tell no one what had happened. But notice how the text ends. And he told them to give her something to eat. So what does a 12-year-old girl do who's just been raised from the dead by Jesus? She walks around and eats. And everybody's going, whoa, you can walk and eat. Why is that amazing? Because you were just dead. That's amazing. It's amazing and fascinating, but resurrection means normal things. Do we often think resurrection, we think we're going to fly around like superheroes. No, we're going to get up and walk and eat. And that's going to be amazing. After you've experienced the the curse of sin and death in this world, after you've experienced the grave and you're going to get up and walk and eat. That's amazing. And and as I say that, some of you said, well, heaven just got a lot better because I get to eat even more. But what did Jesus do when he's raised from the dead? He eats fish with the disciples. We hear the stories of Jesus walking on the road of Emmaus and he can't wait to get somewhere to eat. It's amazing. But here what Jesus does is he redefines death. These people did not mistake this little girl's death for a a coma. They didn't make a mistake in pronouncing her dead. She was dead. It's not an illustrating death or euphemism for death. She was dead. And Jesus teaches us the theology of resurrection here. The Bible teaches us that we're going to die and our souls are going to go to be with the Lord. But there's a day where he will speak again and he will say, arise and his children will get up and they will be joined to their bodies and they will walk, eat and rule with him. And that's what Jesus is teaching us here. We don't have to wonder what resurrection is like. We see it at Easter and we see it here. It's not some mysterious thing going and resting high on some mysterious mountain in the middle of nowhere. We, we just wonder what that's like. No, in glory, we're going to have bodies. It's going to be much like the things we experience now, except infinitely better without sin and death. The Bible teaches us that and we should look forward to that. and We should long for that. But here what Jesus does is he teaches us how to have faith in that hope of resurrection in the face of the scariest thing we will ever endure. I don't know that there's anything worse than what this man endured. And having his daughter die. I don't know if there's anything worse than the pain that shot through his body when he heard the news. 
And it was outlandish. It was foolish. It didn't make any sense for Jesus to say, stop it. Don't, I mean, he could have said to Jesus, you haven't seen her and you haven't seen her. She's sick. She was at the point of death before I left. I'm sure she's dead. What do you mean? Stop fearing and believe. And it's the same with us. When you hear the words cancer, oncology, and someone walks up and says, don't fear, only believe. You would say, get out of my face. You don't know what it's like. Maybe you've never heard those words. It's not just some wishy-washy, cotton candy, power and positive thinking. No, Jesus says, listen to me. I'm the Holy One. And when I tell you the dead will walk again, they will walk again. When you hear the last beep on the heart monitor and the rustle of cords being pulled out of the wall and out of bodies, you don't want to hear, don't fear, just believe. And that is the outlandish nature of the gospel of the kingdom. Is that when you believe in one who is already back from the dead, seated at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning, that's all you got. That's all you got is to only believe. Who else you going to trust? But a former corpse. What else do you got to do? Fear ain't getting you nowhere. Being scared ain't getting you nowhere. But a holy, righteous king back from the dead is the only one who can solve your worst problems. And you know what he promises us? He promises us a day where a trumpet will blast and all the professional mourners will be silenced. He promises us a day where the eastern sky will be ripped open and, and the the dissonant sounds of weeping and screaming and wailing over sin and death will be silenced forever. And for those of us who are here today who are in Christ, we will get up and walk. And we will walk to a glorious wedding feast of the Lamb. And guess what we will do? We will eat. And it will be delightful and glorious and amazing and we will look around and say, we're eating. We were dead and now we're alive. Isn't that amazing? See, the truth is you can't fix your worst problem. Sin and death, you can't fix it. Only Jesus can. And sometimes all you got is to believe, only believe. And we believe in a kingdom where dads will no longer carry their children out of hospitals. A kingdom that Jesus gives us that is full of daughters who are made clean of sin and little girls who walk in Him.